0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lessons this week, as I'm sure you've noticed, have a strong emphasis on God's law. Moses instructs the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30. This is one of his... Well, Deuteronomy is basically, the entire book is three sermons that Moses is giving to the people when they're about to enter the promised land. And here he says, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. Psalm 119, which we read responsively: blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And then we come to our gospel lesson from Matthew 5, which continues the Sermon on the Mount we've looked at the last two weeks. And here, Jesus expounds on the law and what it actually entails. He does this by considering just a few of the commandments and how they were understood by the scribes and Pharisees who taught them and by the Jews who heard them. Uh, The basic underlying problem in Jesus' day and in our own is this question. What does the law require? What actually is required? Jesus said, you've heard it. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So what does the law require? The civil law, that's one thing, that requires that you not murder another person. We have charges for murder. We have charges for assault. That's the law Uh, That is the law now, today, and that was the law then, too. They had that same law. If you murdered someone, you would be dragged before uh, the, the judges to determine your fate. Murder is indeed against God's law. And the important thing to note is that an earthly court is capable of adjudicating that. Evidence, witnesses, motive, opportunity, these are all considered. And then the judgment is rendered by the court, by the earthly court. Guilty, not guilty. This is natural law, and this is a law that all of mankind possesses. It's not unique to Christians. That's why in essentially every civilization of all time and of all faiths and religions, there have been laws against murder. I mean, sure, there were civilizations where they had child sacrifice, which is certainly murder. It's not to say that the national law is always easily understood. But you can go into a Muslim country and they'll have laws against murder. Or a uh, Buddhist country and they'll have, they'll have laws against murder. But Jesus says... But I say to you, remember also that Jesus is teaching as one who had authority on the, for the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> but I say to you, Jesus is saying that in the court of heaven, God adjudicates the court case that is hidden from the natural world. God judges the heart. Your anger with another person civil courts cannot judge that. They can't tell and convict you of being angry with your, bro- with your brother. But God can. The heavenly court sees that guilt. Your anger with another person, although it can be kept neatly and quietly inside within your heart, makes you guilty of murder before the court of heaven. God renders a verdict on that anger in your heart, and the verdict is guilty. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery becomes public in the act of fornication The outward act can be witnessed just like murder can be witnessed and civil courts can execute justice. But to properly understand God's law, you have to go beyond the earthly court and again consider the heavenly court. And Jesus says that the heavenly court sees that lustful look and that lustful look alone makes you guilty of adultery. Oh, but God, it was my eye. My eye caused me to sin. That's not my fault. That's how you made me. You gave me these eyes. And all they do is lead me to sin. And this hand, I use it to smack and smack. And that's, and, and my hand causes me to sin, God. That's what's causing me to sin. Jesus addresses this to say, Oh, okay. Is it your eye that's causing you to sin? It's not your heart, it's your eye. Well, just cut out your eye then. If that will stop you from sinning, it's better for you to be blind. Believe me, it's better for you to be blind through this life and still enter eternal bliss in heaven. Is it your hand? Oh, you have a problem with your hands. You're punching people, your hands are causing you to sin. Just go ahead and cut it off. You don't need that hand. It's better for you to have no hands but to enter eternal life in heaven. And believe me, when God, when Jesus returns and your bodies are raised and In the resurrection, your body will be raised and restored to what it properly is, free from sin. You'll have the hands back. So go ahead and just take them off if that's what's causing you to sin. There is a problem, of course. It's in here, in your heart. This is where our sin comes from. It comes out from from within us. It's not your eye that caused you to sin. Of course, there is some good advice of saying, maybe if you're walking, uh, if you're uh, walking through the grocery store and there's a, you know, a uh, uh, illicit magazine or something, maybe you shouldn't like look at it as you're walking by. Maybe that will draw you into sin. So there are certainly some practical guidance to be, uh, you know, that we shouldn't uh, ignore. But Adam's fall is the cause of sin in our very members. It's, it's not how God created us to be, but it is deeply rooted in our flesh since the fall of Adam. We have that in our imperishable bodies. To say that my hand or my eye caused me to sin, is, it's a lie. It's in my heart. It, you know, this kind of reminds me of this headline... You know, people wanted to demonize SUVs a long time ago because they were gas guzzlers. And so you'd see these he- headlines in the newspaper that would say, SUV crashes into a coffee shop or something. Ugh. The SUV just like crashed right into it. You know, or uh, the other one is um, uh, guns, you know. Oh, assault weapon. Assault weapon as though that's like, that's a particular type. This weapon is made for assaults. Whereas this weapon is made for baking? Uh, Anyway, assault weapon kills, you know, an unarmed man. Oh, it was the assault weapon that did the killing. It wasn't the person pulling the trigger. But see, it's, it's, it's a lie as we try and shift blame and put it somewhere else where it doesn't belong. And Jesus is saying, you are guilty inside your heart. You want God to read your heart? He's read it. It's guilty. That's the verdict. If you're focused on the outward act, then it is the hand that strikes another person. Sure, but Jesus is expounding the law so that it can be more properly understood. That it is the sinful heart that causes a man to strike another. That causes the eye to look lustfully. It is the sinful heart that does that. Jesus goes on, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think this is better understood and translated as makes her guilty of adultery, Uh, because she's not actually committing adultery, but he makes her guilty of adultery because he puts her aside and likewise makes a, uh, the person who would marry her in the future uh, guilty of adultery, like before the world, basically. And in an earthly court, they're, they're presumed to be guilty of adultery. They're not actually guilty of adultery. If they were the innocent party that was just put aside. But does this mean that uh, divorce is okay under certain circumstances? Because that's part of what we try to do is we say, okay, well, see, there's a little carve-out that makes it okay. No. No, it is not. Divorce is always a sin. It is always the separation of that which God has joined together. I mean, it's true, though. We have to remember at the same time, some sins have to be committed. For example, a woman who is beaten by her husband will most likely need to leave him. Does that mean it's okay? No, it's still a sin. But that's the sin she has to commit. Because if she's murdered by him, then that's an even greater sin. See, we live in a fallen world. And so we will be confronted with these sorts of decisions. But, we don't, well, but what we don't do is say, oh, but God's law can be taken down and taken down and taken down a notch over and over again until it ceases to be any law at all. Jesus is saying, that's what you all have done. You've taken the law and you've made it all about the outward act, the things that only can be seen in, this, in these horizontal relationships. But what you're missing is the vertical relationship between you and me, between us and God, that vertical relationship. That's what you're not thinking about. So let me tell you about the heavenly court because it reads your heart and it sees the lust and it sees the anger. And it convicts you of that. Some people would say, well, Jesus gives the reason of adultery for divorce. Doesn't that mean that divorce in the case of adultery is okay? No, that's also missing the point. That's not what he's saying. In this passage, Jesus is not trying to spell out the lawful reasons for divorce. He's doing the opposite. He's saying that earthly courts will judge by the letter of the law. An earthly court will look at the letter of the law to determine if the action is justified. But adultery is sin. Divorce is sin. Sometimes it's unavoidable because we live in this fallen world. But that doesn't mean it's okay. It's the necessary sin that we're stuck with, that we live with, because we live in a fallen world. We can justify our actions before a civil court. And that's what we do. But we can't justify ourselves before God. And that is the key in all of this. Is that we, we, we cannot justify ourselves before God. I mean, 1 Corinthians 7, which we studied recently, Paul writes to Christians that if their spouse abandons them on account of their new Christian faith, they may let their spouse go. And they're even free to remarry. You'll notice that he doesn't say anything about sexual immorality. Well, does that mean that Paul is giving us a different rule than Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount? No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching that God's intent for marriage is that it is lifelong. Divorce is only a consequence of sin. The divorce practices in their day were very lax. The emphasis was given basically on just making make sure you do it in the proper way give her a certificate of divorce. That makes it official, proper, and everything's good to go. And Jesus is saying, no, you misunderstand. That is not the right way to look at this. He goes on, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Boy, this is so true. I mean, the the truth is simple. You know, the truth is simple. The Lies are the things that take a lot of explanation. But the truth is, is generally simple. <clears throat> and in, in that day, there was a complex system of oaths. There were stereotypical lawyer types who weighed the importance of keeping the oath on the exact terms of the oath. If God's name was not used, you were free to break the oath. That's why Jesus mentions these different things, you know. Uh, that they were swearing by because they got into the minutiae you know, kind of like stereotypical lawyers. They got into it and they're like, well, you're, you're probably free to break this oath, but not this one. And, and Jesus says the whole system is crap. You're not free to lie. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. That's, that's how we are honest. That's how we be, are honest. And anything more than that just becomes it uh, uh, comes from evil now he's not saying that you can't take an oath in a court of law we have oaths because we live in a fallen world again we live in a fallen world some people have interpreted this to mean that they can't put their hand on the bible and swear I, tell, I swear to tell the whole truth nothing but the truth and so forth but that's, that's a misunderstanding of it he's not, that's not what he's saying he's just saying be honest in your dealings when you say yes let it be yes when you say no let it be no Anything less than that is dishonest. So what? With all of this law that's just like raining down on us from Deuteronomy, from Psalm 119, from the Sermon on the Mount. All of this law that is just being expounded. You thought you were keeping the law? You thought you were keeping the law because you didn't murder someone? Well, if you looked at them in anger, you're guilty of murder. That's what Jesus is saying. What do we do with all of this? Is Jesus teaching us the true understanding of the law and how it is to be observed? Is he teaching us, look, this is what the law really is, so this is what you need to get busy doing. Or is he teaching us that it's impossible to keep the law? Yes. He's teaching both of these things. This is the law. And we ought not soften it. This is the law. This is God's divine law He's given to us. God's law is not merely a civil law with civil righteousness. That's what He's teaching. God looks at the heart. It's not merely the outward keeping of the law, but the inward keeping. For example, when He talks about anger and talks about reconciling, to be reconciled with your brother or sister in Christ does not merely mean to put on a happy face and be polite, although that is a good start. It means to truly regard them as the brother for whom Christ died and to afford them the love and care that Christ has shown you. This is the demand of the law. Now, some will say that this sounds legalistic, I want to read Martin Luther's conclusion to the Ten Commandments. After he expounds somewhat in a small catechism on the Ten Commandments, he says, what does God say of all these commandments? He says thus, and this is from Exodus 20, I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all that transgress these commandments. Therefore, we should dread his wrath and not act contrary to these commandments. But he promises grace and every blessing to all that keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him, and gladly do, zealously and diligently order our whole life according to his commandments. You may have heard some people say that that God wants you to just do your best or try your hardest, and that will please him enough to win your salvation. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God's holiness demands perfection. Perfection. Perfection, not my best, not the best I could offer, but absolute, unblemished perfection. That is the demand of the law. And since this perfection eludes every single one of us, all I can say is thanks be to God that in Christ Jesus, perfection has been obtained. You have eluded it in your own keeping of the law, but you have not eluded it in Jesus Christ's keeping of the law for you. Jesus' shed blood is your righteousness. Paul says, for our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The point of all this law ultimately is to show you your true condition. The mirror of God's law. And the mirror shows that you are a lost, sinful, damned sinner. And why? Why does God show you that in the mirror? so that you may despair, despair of your own righteousness and receive something far better. Don't don't just end with despair, okay? I said despair of your own righteousness. That's the thing you despair of. Don't fall into despair and say, woe is me, a lost and damned sinner. No, just despair of your righteousness. You're not... You are not able to keep the law perfectly and win your salvation. And God knows that. And he has given Jesus Christ to take upon himself your sin so that you have his righteousness by faith. You have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. When Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, And you go, "Uh uh-oh. Don't say, "Uh uh-oh. Say, thank you, God, for making me perfect because you gave me Christ's robe of righteousness. So I lay claim to the perfection that he has. In your baptism, you've been washed clean of your sins, buried with Christ, and raised in a new life. You might say, but I know I'm not saved by my works, but I mean, doesn't the law tell me and guide me in how I should live? By all means, yes. God has given you a new life. You are a new creature in Christ. You are salt and light, even when you fall short. Simil justus et prakater. You all know what that means? Simultaneously, simul, simultaneously, Eustace et peccator, simultaneously a saint and a sinner. That's what you are, and that's what I am. We're simultaneously saints and sinners. So the law will convict us, and it will show us our sin. And then we remember our baptism, that we are claimed by God, adopted as his beloved child, for Christ's sake, forgiven of all of your sins washed and made new. You don't live with the shame of sin when you're washed and made new. But we still struggle with this, with this body. Rejoice that God has worked faith in you. The faith that He has worked in you which clings to the promises of God, which receives the free gift of God's grace. Before the heavenly courts, the the court that really matters, the court that reads your heart. You're declared righteous for the sake of Christ's sacrificial death for your sins. You're seen with Jesus lenses now. God looks at you through his Jesus lenses and sees his righteousness on each one of you. You're righteous For Christ's sake, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.